I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today, my conversation is with an old friend. Kelly and I met in the World Happiness Summit when there used to be a World Happiness Summit in person. I hear it's coming back, by the way, a few years ago, and we stayed in touch. Kelly Campbell is a conscious leadership coach, if you want. So she works with creative and technology leaders to transform their life and growth, if you want, into a more um, responsible, more self-aware happier, perhaps, business leaders. She was the former owner of a cause marketing agency. So she had a marketing agency for 14 years. At the beginning, it was just a typical marketing agency, and then it transformed into an agency that works specifically on businesses with a cause, or at least the responsible side uh, of businesses. She uh, left that agency or sold it to focus entirely on the idea of consciousness and conscious leadership. She focuses on personal development, purpose, positioning people and pipelines, and profitably while we stay true to our true needs of well-being. She knows well that business ownership can lead to total meltdown. She knows it firsthand. So accordingly, she tries to steer those businesses more into spiritual awakening. Kelly is a keynote speaker at leadership conferences across the United States, has been featured in the New York Times, Women Entrepreneur, The Startup on Medium, and Forbes. And uh, she most recently became a member of the Forbes Business Council. She is currently authoring her first book on the prerequisites of leadership, and she is the host of Thrive, a podcast that is basically a video podcast uh, bi-weekly that helps agency owners uh, navigate personal and professional growth. I've had a wonderful conversation on Thrive recently, and that's when we decided that perhaps it would be useful to share with you the journey of Kelly and how she moved from the typical New York life of go get it into the person that she is today. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Kelly Campbell. Kelly, wonderful to see you again. It was, what, a week and a half ago that I was on your podcast? About that, yeah, very recently. And uh, I love it. So Thrive, as I said in the introduction, is about helping leaders of agencies basically navigate personal and professional growth, not just focusing on the business. But you were not always into the personal growth bit, Kelly. So I know that you you started and owned a marketing agency for 14 years, which is amazing business, if you ask me. You called it a purpose marketing, basically a cause marketing agency. What was a cause marketing agency? What's cause marketing? So cause marketing, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I'm really, I love talking with you. So I'm really happy to be here. A cause marketing agency is one that focuses on social enterprise. That could mean nonprofits, foundations, any type of enterprise that 
has a social impact mission. So it could be, we did some work with uh, Mercedes-Benz corporate out of Germany, but we were specifically working on one of their initiatives that focused on like social impact for artists, just as an example. So it doesn't always have to be a nonprofit or a foundation. It can actually be, you know, even a Fortune 500 company specifically working on the social impact initiative of that brand. That's amazing. This is like the best job on earth. Absolutely. So you're an entrepreneur, you're successful, you're doing business for people to help them do their social responsibility. And yet you left it around when? A few years ago, right? Yeah. So I started that agency when I was 22 years old, before I knew any better. I was uh, a brazen kid out of college who had um, a bit of an oil and water relationship with corporate America, my first job out of school. I just encountered a lot of misogyny and a lot of inefficiency and a lot of, I don't know, I guess I would call it too many cooks in the kitchen, very male dominant tech field. And, you know, at 22, I was like, I don't need this. I could probably do this better. So I started that at 22 and then sort of groped my way along for about seven years, finally realized that I didn't have all the answers and basically hired a consultant who helped steer us in the direction of that cause marketing as a, as a purpose, as a vision, as a mission, obviously getting the collective input of the entire team. And I sold the company in 2016. So I was 36 years old, essentially, when I was no longer the CEO, the, the founder of that company. You spent 14 years and you put it in on track and then sold it. Why did you sell it? To be honest, I was just, I loved my team. I loved our clients. I loved the work that we did, to be very clear. I was really, really unhappy, like deeply unhappy, very unhealthy. I had tacked on about 40 pounds over the course of those 14 years because I wasn't eating properly. I was working really long hours. I just wasn't taking care of myself. And again, what kind of example are you setting when you're the first one in, the last one to leave, not taking care of yourself, not eating properly? People notice that. And so I think my team, as much as they noticed it, I don't think that they knew everything that was going on because I I had sort of mastered the art of, yeah, if it's in my <laughs> hands, nobody has to worry about it, right? Like that just kind of like confident mask. And clients appreciated it because we were very responsive and we were very competent and did a great job. But inside, I was dying. My marriage was dying. And I honestly just, I felt like I needed a way out. How many of us go through this? I mean, it's clear, of course, it's a very personal story for you, but I think it's almost a a typical story for any success. You know, we, we just put our hearts and life in it. And then we end up in a place where it sort of eats us alive, really. It's a good way to put it. You left it to do what? Well, I didn't know. (laughs) I (laughs) didn't know. You just left. You basically said, that's it. And you sold it. Yeah, I sold it. And then I didn't have a plan. And now with the non-compete, I wasn't able to start a new agency. I wasn't able to contact any of the existing clients already, obviously, because that was part of the acquisition. And I wasn't even able to take a partnership role in another agency. So I felt very much like, okay, if I don't have a team and I can't work in this industry in the same way, what am I going to do? Oh, and also, by the way, I don't even know who I am in this moment. (laughs) By the way. By the way, (laughs) just, just, you know, small casual thing. (laughs) So I kind of, I feel very much like that was my moment for spiritual awakening. 
or whatever people want to want to call that because it really felt like this post-apocalyptic moment where there's like steam rising from the asphalt and there's empty buildings everywhere. It felt like I don't know who I am and I don't know what I'm going to do for a living and my career has defined my identity and now that's gone. So what do I do? And so it was a really, really tough time. I just kind of went inward and I started exploring little things that I guess, honestly, out of maybe desperation, needing answers, something. And I discovered little brands, I guess I would call it, of spirituality. So kind of universal law and Buddhism and shadow work and this kind of really seemingly odd mixture of different brands of you might call spirituality or psychological development or it wasn't therapy because I had done that for years prior. Certainly wasn't therapy. I knew therapy wasn't going to be the thing that got me to where I was going to need to get to. So I was just dabbling in lots of different areas. And then finally, I felt healthy enough mentally, emotionally, all of that to say, okay, well, I, I have a set of skills. I have expertise. I have experience. I can really help other agency owners because other people who were doing what I was doing had to be feeling the same way. So that's where I went next was consulting. And then that turned fairly quickly into coaching. And then I really, really leaned into the more of the um, self-development, healing, and kind of looking at leadership as a healing journey. Can I ask you a very open question? I mean, did you feel that you were qualified as a coach when you started coaching? or were Absolutely you- not. Okay. So you were healing yourself while working with others. Is that typical? I I find that a lot of the people that I know that are amazing coaches today really were battered before they went into that direction. Yeah, I think coaching is really interesting. And I don't think it's that different from therapy in some ways. I think, you know, every therapist gets into that field because they are trying to ultimately heal something about themselves. That is my personal belief. It may not be true for every single person, but for many people, I think it is. And I think, listen, no human has all of the answers. We're all constantly healing. We're all constantly learning and growing. So just because I have the title of a coach or someone else has a title of psychotherapist or something, it doesn't mean that they're not healing and growing in their own lives. So I think that that is typical. That's also where you have some potential imposter syndrome, right? Which is very (laughs) real. (laughs) Can I help people if I'm still learning? Well, the answer is yes, because you have a lot of experience and you have a lot of years behind you of doing things that it's funny i heard um what was it your i don't remember where i heard the story of the the rabbi did you talk about this on one of your podcasts i must have i talk about a lot of things i think it was the story of this rabbi i thought you told the story i don't know why i thought it was you the rabbi that was walking wandering through the woods not my story maybe it wasn't you okay great so I'll, (laughs) i'll tell it so i heard it somewhere and now i'm gifting it forward So there's a rabbi who's lost and he's walking through the woods for days and then weeks, right? And he is just like completely lost. He has no idea where he's going and he's feeling really dejected and he's tired. And so he comes out of the little tree line of the forest and he sees a little stream and there's a rock there. So he sits down, he kind of like puts some water on his face, relaxes for a minute. So his whole posture is kind of like 
very calm and grounded. And all of a sudden there are a group of people that come out of the woods and they are elated to see him. And they say, oh my God, we're saved. This rabbi clearly knows the way out of this forest. <laughs> and he says, I'm sorry, I don't actually know the way. However, I have weeks of experience of knowing which paths not to take that lead you deeper into the forest, but together we can find the way out together. And I think it's a really beautiful story. And for me, I love this. It's like so relevant to the idea of coaching or anything in that mentorship realm. This is so beautiful, Kelly, because in, in truth, I think it's arrogant almost to, to assume that you know the way, because regardless of what you know, the person you are coaching has gone through a very different experience in life, right? So they have the right to explore their own path. And your role, if you want, as a friend or as a coach or as anyone that really wants to help is to say, let me go through your experience and your path with you and maybe share with you some of what I know has worked for others and I know what has not worked for others. And based on that, you can define if you want to run full speed ahead in that path or you want to try another path. And I think that's a, a humble and wonderful way uh, of doing it. In Soul for Happy, my book, I talk about the illusion of knowledge and the idea that we, we think that we know, but we almost know nothing at all. And I think that's really wonderful that you see it this way. Yeah. And just to kind of build on that, talking about, you know, your book and things that you've shared about Ali, like he was in many ways, as you've said, one of your greatest teachers, right? And so I think Absolutely. the coaching relationship is very much like there are days where I'm coaching a client and they come back and sort of reframe something for me or or bring something up in a way that I don't, I didn't necessarily think about. And I bring that with me to my next session or to someone else. And I think in many ways, it is that that story resonates so deeply with me because we are all finding our way out of the forest, right? Like we, none of us have all of the answers, but if we do it together, yes, I can maybe lead the way just a step in front of someone, but that's all it is, is one step. Do you have coaches yourself? I, I do actually, I have quite a few. I have two, two that I've been working with for a number of years. One is like Buddhist psychology and contemplative science coach. And uh, one is a shadow work coach. What is shadow work for those who don't know? Shadow work is, <laughs> I'll say it this way. If you're considering starting shadow work, also take out some stock in Kleenex. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I wish that someone would have given me that tip way back then. But it's essentially, we all have childhood wounding or some kind of past trauma because none of our childhoods were perfect. We all had some kind of need, basic need that was left unmet. And so we spend a lot of our time essentially living out or repeating the patterns of that past programming of how we were developed between zero to seven. Some people say like zero to 12. And so shadow work is essentially going back into some traumatic or pertinent memories that have shaped us as to who we are as adults, going back into those memories, replaying them once just to kind of like feel into what was happening, what was true for you as a young person experiencing that, and then replaying it through a second time in a way that the end of that story, that the narrative is actually rewritten. And the idea is that if you start to heal those things, going back into those memories, then you open up the path for healing in your adult life. It's a very sort of uh, succinct way to say it. It's a lot more than that. But 
yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. I would say it's very closely related to therapy. Do you believe that finding the cause is a prerequisite to actually healing? So I, I had, without mentioning names, I had a very prominent professor in Stanford, like really amazing in psychology, psychotherapy, and so on, who came to me through a common friend once, and we spoke for two and a half hours, and all of the, of the work he's done, I'm fascinated by him, like I'm listening attentively to what he's saying. And then at the end he says, okay, so let's get to the point that I wanted to talk to you about. I was like, oh my God, I thought the last two hours were what, what we were going to talk about. And he said, I read your book and you're an engineer. And I said, yes, I must have done something really wrong now because I'm in front of one of the gods of the topic, right? And, and he goes like, you take a very different approach. So in therapy, what we do is we wanna look back and identify the moment at which something happened. You, as an engineer, you say, I don't care what happened. If something's broken with the machine, let me show you how to fix it, right? We don't actually have to visit the reason that triggered that. Do you believe in this? I mean, I think it's interesting. I think I'm open to different people having different experiences. For me, because of the size, I guess I would say, and the depth of that wound that I had from my biological mother, for me, it was very important to go back and to heal that and to sort of reparent myself so that worked really well for me. Would you be open to sharing a little bit about that? Sure. So in my household, when I was growing up, I grew up with a mother who had a comorbidity condition of borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. So in my home, I didn't really feel safe. There was a lot of abuse, mental, physical, emotional, etc. And so the same experience was not for my brother, but it was for me because my mother essentially with those conditions, she sort of looked at me as the younger version of herself that she really loathed. Mm. And in addition to that, I had a very close relationship with my father, really, really looked up to him and had a very deep relationship and I still do. And I think because again of her condition, she looked at me as like the, I know this sounds strange, but she looked at me as like the other woman in my father's life because it rationally in her mind of scarcity, it was like, well, if he's giving her love, then there's less for me. <laughs> and so that was threatening to her. It makes all the sense in the world now, but when you're a little kid, none of it. this makes sense, yeah. right? Like you just know, I can't do anything well enough for mommy to love me, right? Like I got perfect grades. I was the captain of every sports team. I did really, really well. I tried to be so perfect and tried to observe everything in the room, all of the nuances. When can I say something? When can I not? It's the conditions and the rigidity in which I grew up were very, they were very formative for who I became, you know, as an adult. So going back and reparenting myself to realize I didn't deserve that, that that was not fair that she was just not capable. She didn't have the tools to be the type of parent that I needed. And my dad, actually, they got separated for the first time when I was nine. So he left the house. And so that was a really scary moment in my life at nine years old, thinking, well, my protector is now gone from the house. What is that going to mean for me? So there was a lot there. There was a lot there that I really needed to work through. And I don't think that that kind of work is ever completely finished. I think that 
your reaction to things just gets like less and less as time goes on, if that makes sense. But that takes so much courage for you to be able to say, I need to go back and look at all of this and understand now with my adult mind what my kid brain couldn't grasp. That takes so much courage. It's really commendable what you're doing and to be able to to face it. Because I used the example, I think, on my third book, which is not yet published, about the idea that my PE teacher seemed to be so much bigger when I was a kid than when I met him when I was 24. He seemed to be like a giant then. And when I met him, he was actually shorter than I am and not that, (laughs) right? And so those traumas that you get as a child, they're scary. Like they're a horror movie in so many ways to go back and live them that, oh, I'm not going to do shadow healing, I think, uh, This is shadow work. It's not for me. Hence the Kleenex. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you love it more now, Kelly? I mean, I'm sure your daily life is very different than a marketing agency, even if the agency was focusing on purpose. Today, perhaps your reach is fewer people, but your day is very different. How does it feel? Yeah. So I think my reach is actually larger because of the podcast and some other content and just doing speaking engagements and things like that. So I think the reach is actually larger. I would say like the one-on-one impact is smaller just because of I'm working one-on-one with the agency leaders. How is it different or, or how I feel about it is that it's so rewarding. So what my shadow work coach has been able to do for me literally has changed my entire life. The way that I operate, the way that I think, the way that I show up in partnership, the happiness that I feel, right? All of those things are completely transformed from what they were even just five years ago, four years ago. So being able to do that in some way with an agency leader to say, okay, you might be the person who is holding your business back. And the reason for that might be because of these self-limiting beliefs that you have, which started all the way back in childhood. And so if you're game to do that, let's dig through that together. You don't have to do it alone. I can do it with you. And so we do that together. And the focus in that moment is on their healing as an individual. And then that naturally translates into them showing up more authentically with their team. It shows up in ways like valuing themselves more. So they're able to negotiate better for higher rates, change the pricing model of their you know, services, how they actually pitch or develop new business. So you see, like, again, you know this better than anyone. There's no disconnect between the mode that's at work and the mode that's at home, right? Like you're one person. But for some reason, especially in business and even more so in America, it's like we are taught that you have to, you know, you can be yourself when you're home and that's a separate person. But when you show up and you put your business pants on, this is how you have to act. I don't want to see emotion. I don't, right? Like you're just powering through. Yeah. And luckily we're at uh, an inflection point where none of that is actually true anymore, or it's getting to the point where it's not true anymore because nobody wants to live like that. It's fragmented. I think that's super, super critical. So so heal me. I'm a business founder and leader for a a very long time. No, but I love the concept of self-limiting beliefs. I mean, let's talk about that for a minute. So what do you think would be the typical few examples of self-limiting beliefs that would trigger us at work? Yeah, sure. So I'll go with like the um, pricing just because that's like one of the easier ones. So 
if you believe inherently that, you know, from, from childhood, that there's a very, very deep wound that some part of you doesn't feel valued or valuable, or that you need to earn love from people in order to have it, right? That you have to do something in order to get love. Well, then that translates and follows you throughout your life. It follows you in personal relationships, but it also follows you in business. And so if you don't believe in your own value, how can you as the leader of an organization believe in the value of the services or products that you're, that you're providing, right, in the world? So it, you know, weaves its way into there. Yeah, that definitely, in my view, is a, is a very, very self-limiting belief. I mean, the idea of our value itself is probably the biggest self-limiting belief ever. We've been taught somehow that there are certain, I don't know, measurements that make us valuable more than others or less, less than others. And I think that's definitely something that is affecting all, probably all of us in an interesting way. So what, what would you do to help someone navigate that? So I would go back to, you know, having them think through, you know, obviously like the whole meditative process of that. And this is where sort of the, the contemplative aspect comes in, you know, really sitting with that grounding together, closing their eyes, bringing them back through, well, where was the first time and maybe queuing up, where was the first time where you recall feeling like you didn't matter in your life as a child? And it's interesting what happens when you sort of laser focus that, the memories that come up are things that surprise most people, <laughs> right? And then we realize that there are actually a few things that continue to reinforce that. And so maybe it wasn't just one event, maybe it was a series of multiple events, or maybe it was a person in your life, similar to my story, that did that on a daily basis. And so that's like a much harder thing to heal with a coach if you're focusing mostly on business, I would say like having a coach and a therapist in that case would be the recommendation. But yeah, just giving voice to it, I think there's a lot of power in it. And then helping them to see, well, was that true, right? Like, how do we know that, that that's actually not reality now? Can you see the difference of what happened with the person who forced you to have this memory, the, the person that this memory or this event from when you were younger how it was distorted because you did not have the capacity or the tools or the awareness to understand what was actually happening. But now you do because you're an adult and you can look back at it. So I think when you change people's reality about what their story is, something happens. It can no longer be the same narrative. And so it's a slow process. I want to be very clear about that. This is not like overnight work. This isn't like, oh, we don't have a business plan today. We write a business plan and now we have a business plan. <laughs> this is like, it's ongoing work and it's a commitment. It's definitely a, a, a reframing of something that is very deeply seated, you know, very deeply rooted in every one of us. But I think the process itself applies to every belief. So I believe it or not, I do that to all my beliefs without exception. You know, a good segue to another topic is my, my younger self in terms of belief in relationship with, uh, with women, same-sex relationships, all of that being influenced by a society that I grew in that did not see the world like the way we see the world today and, you know, revisiting all of that. So I know from our conversations as friends that when you left your agency or when you sold your agency, it surfaced also challenges that you had in your relationship, in your marriage at the time. 
And would you be open to share a bit about that? I think it would benefit a lot of people. Yeah. So because of the amount of time and stress and everything with during the agency days, I think it, it really took its toll on the marriage. So that's one part of it. Obviously, you don't end a marriage for one reason. Like there's multiple things. And so like for me, the second part of it was I met my now ex-wife when I was 24 years old, which was the exact year when I had my last interaction with my mother, my biological mother. Oh, so interesting. So my ex-wife came into my life at the moment where I needed something very different, right? 24 years old in general, you need something very different at 24 than you need at 40. People change, people evolve, but I really needed something. I needed, again, this sort of like being held being held because of this uh, experience with my mother. And my ex-wife was 20 years older than I am. So there's a lot of things that for me now, looking back, like really line up. And as after I sold the agency and I started getting more into spiritual development and self-work and self-love and all of these things and healing, I guess I would just say healing, I realized that that relationship was really no longer what I needed. It wasn't providing for me the freedom, the creativity, all of the things that that were so critical to who I was. And the reason why all of that happened at that time was because I was discovering who I was. And so once I discovered it, I was like, oh, this is great information. And also <laughs> I have to end my marriage. <laughs> I did know? not know that. Mm, is this really me? <laughs> right, right. So it was very difficult. And we had a lovely relationship. We were together for 16 years, married for eight. I mean, I married my best friend. We had a beautiful relationship. And so it was really difficult. And it can also be true that after that marriage was ended, I just set out on a whole new journey to discover like what else is possible for myself. We're in Pride Month, so would you be able to say that over 20 years of same-sex relationships, do you think the world has changed really? I do. I do. I definitely do. I mean, I, I remember when we got married, it was actually, we had made the decision to get married before same-sex marriage was legal and we live in New York. And so we made this decision to get married. And then about two months before the wedding was supposed to happen, same-sex marriage was passed in New York. And we were, oh, I was really excited. Oh, it's because of you excited. that it happened. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. So it was passed. So, so when we actually did get married, we were certainly not one of the first, but in the first couple of months of people who were able to legally get married. And then I still had like the New York Times edition from the day that, you know, it was legalized across the entire United States and all of these things. So yes, of course, you've seen progress. I still think that there's a long way to go. I think now it's not, I think it's not so much the conversation around same-sex marriage and, and all of that. I think it's more about the conversation has sort of centered around gender identity and gender fluidity and relationships that sort of break out of that prescriptive path, I might call it, sort of that heteronormative path where it's very binary. And I think people are realizing that the more open that they become, the more healed they become, they realize that 
there are more aspects to themselves. And I'm also speaking from personal experience. There are more aspects to themselves that they'd like to explore. And so maybe that doesn't mean that you just have one partner, or maybe that means that love can look very different. I think people are exploring all sorts of things within themselves and then also within the container of relationship. So that's really exciting to me. And I think it pushes some buttons for people. It's very confronting because if you have grown up, like you just said, if you've grown up in a society where none of that, that was almost like classified as deviant behavior, then it can push some buttons. It can be confronting. And I think people will become more and more accepting, but right now we're kind of in the fight for that. So there's a lot of information, especially this month out, like, yes, pride is a celebration, but I think it's really important to remember that pride was a riot. Pride was like a fight for equality and rights and just the desire to be oneself and to be authentic and just yeah. live in love. Yeah. I mean, I think my simple brain just cannot get it. It's like, why is it that everyone has the right to buy the car that they want, you know, four by four or a sports car or a bicycle, right? Anyone can do anything they want and nobody should tell you what you want to do with your life, right? Some people will buy a sports car and it's fast, dangerous to their life, maybe if they go too fast. But as long as you don't hurt anyone else, what the F is wrong with others? Like, why would you tell me what I should do? You don't tell me what I should eat. You don't tell me what I should wear. You don't. Why is it that this topic, humanity seems to have to overanalyze it. It's like, just let people be. I just don't get it really. And I, in a very interesting way, I think, I think sometimes we're overcomplicating it by discussing Oh, hold on. There are those many types of relationships that are now categorized and identified. And this is called this and this is called that. Why? If I like to eat vegetables stir fried, but I don't like garlic, do we have to have a name for that? You know, when people ask me and say, are you a vegetarian? I say, no, I eat fish sometimes. So you're a pescatarian. No, really. And I don't eat eggs or, or milk. So what are you? I'm a motarian. I do what Mo likes. You know, it's like, what's wrong with you people? I can be whatever I want. And I think this to me, when I asked the question, did we really get it? I find that we haven't yet. No. I really think so. It's a work in progress for sure. And what you're, what you're sort of touching on is this idea that humans need boxes. We need yeah, categories. Mm -hmm. It makes us feel safe. But I have a wonderful box to describe you. You're Kelly. That's the box, right? You're Kelly with everything I know about you and everything I don't know about you and everything I don't have the right to know about you. You're Kelly and I, I welcome you into my life and I love it, right? And that's it. Is Kelly ever going to be equal to Jane in one box? Impossible. We're so different as humans. And, and I really think, so I wrote about this, actually. I wrote four chapters of a book called Her, which I'm rewriting now, where I was basically saying, just let people be, you know. I mean, part of the objective of the book mainly was to empower the feminine, but part of it is like even that description of more categories of gender is is maybe not the way to go. Maybe the way to go is to just say Kelly is Kelly and she's a point on that spectrum yeah. and she is what she is. Yeah, I think, but that's kind of where the conversation goes because other people need those categories, right? So it can be very confronting if you don't identify as male or female, you can identify as both or neither or female and 
like you can be a she they you can be he they right so like the whole pronoun discussion I think is really important and it's about visibility right it's about what is important to the person so i don't know if i would 100 percent agree with like why do we have to have boxes can't we just call each other our names because for some people those boxes themselves make them feel a little bit more safe not for everyone but some people it's a way for them to describe or express themselves uh, in terms of their identity who they are in the world so I think you just ask. I think that's always the default. You know, what are your <laughs> yeah. preferred pronouns or how shall I call you? I think just asking is a really beautiful invitation. And people can then have the comfort to answer that the way that they want. You could say, how shall I call you? And I might say, I'm Kelly. I identify as she, her. And you know what? In a year from now, I might identify as she, they. I'm open to all of those possibilities because I don't know. And I'm exploring lots of things. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of life. Yeah, I think my hyper-idealistic view of the world, which I know is not possible, is that everyone should feel safe all the time. That's beautiful. Yeah, that we should not even need to identify anyone to welcome them in. And I think this is impossible, practically impossible. But in my heart, that's how I deal with everyone. To me, it's, I just don't see differences. I see everyone Everyone is beautiful. Everyone is welcomed. Everyone, as long as they don't hurt others, which I think is my line. As long as your freedom is contained to yourself, it doesn't overstep on other people's freedom. Just be, be who you are. And, and you should completely be that person, completely, right? Nobody has the right to tell you otherwise. It's societal conditioning that, that is unacceptable, if you ask me. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that I learned that very early on in my career, that being authentic to who I was, was a non-negotiable. I remember really early on, probably one of my very first clients when I had the agency, I had short haircut. The person who I was interacting with was also a gay woman. And so there was sort of that recognition. And she had mentioned something about my tattoo because it was sort of creeping through my blazer. And she said something to me about it. And I had also removed my, I had a tongue ring at the time, again, going back to like 22 years old. So, <laughs> and I had an eyebrow ring and all these different things. And I remember taking all of these pieces of jewelry, which were my self-expression, I took them all out and I covered my tattoos, right? And I was very uncomfortable in my body because I was trying to cover who I was. And I ended up getting the client because I'm competent. But on the way out, she said to me, you know, it doesn't bother me, but in the future, you may want to put a, a watch on that just so that your blazer sleeve doesn't show the tattoo. And I got in wow. the car. She was in the financial services industry, so very conservative. And I knew that, which is why I took the, all of the jewelry out. But anyhow, I got into my car and I was angry. Of course. I was angry and I felt humiliated and I swore to myself that day that I would never go into a meeting again, covering my tattoos or taking my jewelry out. And if a client didn't want to work with me because of that, then that was a blessing, you know, that I didn't want to work with them. And totally. Right. So, and I did that. I really adhered to that. And that was one of my first clients when I was 22. So I've really embodied that for, for the last however many years that is. <laughs> I think it's foolish for someone to think that a tattoo 
makes you more competent or less competent. I mean, it's the quality of what you deliver. I think it's foolish to think otherwise. But this is what we're dealing with. I think this is what we're dealing with almost on every front, on every front. I mean, look, it's not a secret that, you know, I, I remember vividly the day where 9-11 happened. And, uh, you know, at the time I worked at Microsoft and there was a conference, a big, 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 you know, I think it was the annual sales conference or something that was happening around 14 days later. And in my mind, I sort of struggled with the idea of, should I go? I mean, I'm a Middle Eastern how will I be accepted there? The situation is quite painful. I feel the pain of people. How will they react to me? And I had a conversation with my uncle at the time, and my uncle was a very prominent, very successful businessman. Still is, actually. And he basically told me, look, if you put yourself in that box of, I don't want to be in those places because I should be considered that way, that's where everyone will put you. You should just be there and be the person that you are, successful at your business, do what you do right, be nice to everyone. And there will be a few that will not like you, but it's good to know that they don't. And, you know, in reality, I think this changed my life. And I have to say openly, I think that one visit was a big shift in my career. I mean, I remember vividly the contacts I made at the time and how it affected my growth at Microsoft and got me to better positions and more responsibilities and so on. It's, uh, yeah... It's crazy. I mean, so our world has so much to fix. Yeah. But I think that's really poignant. You know, I love what your uncle shared with you. It's like, if you just show up in rooms as you are, then the people who will naturally gravitate to you will gravitate. And people who wouldn't necessarily naturally gravitate to you, maybe they might learn something. Maybe that they may be faced with their own mirror of things that they have encountered, right? So if someone looks at me and thinks, oh, she has tattoos, so she's not competent, clearly I'm going to challenge what they think they know. Or Beautiful. if someone uh, comes across as very feminine and they're a lesbian, that's going to challenge something, right? That yeah. isn't necessarily um, norm or whatever the case may be, right? Or relationships, like we were saying before. Relationships, the structure of relationships and the fluidity and all of that is very challenging to people. And I think it's good. I think we should be challenged because what's on the other side of them is really quite beautiful. And I think beyond our comprehension. And if we don't open up and expand and at least give that the opportunity to flourish in the world, like what are we here for? I'm totally with you. I mean, believe it or not, of course, you know, you, you go to work for many, many reasons, but there couldn't be a better ambassador, if you want, for the fact that Middle Easterns are good humans and, you know, we do good things and it doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or a male or bald or fat or whatever, right? I'm just being an ambassador by, by showing up at my work and being a nice person and an understanding person and a, and a supportive person and so on. You just reset the view. And I think all of us have a role, especially especially if you're a minority or being discriminated against, you know, it's that engagement that, again, I am not shy to say when, when I first started to work really outside the Middle East and my career took me everywhere and I started to interact with gay people in my company, I was like, okay, hold on, this is a new experience for me. And suddenly they became my absolute best friends, wonderful people, right? So it completely resets my view of life. It's like, hold on, somebody told me this is a bad person. But honestly, Patrick, if you're listening, 
he's such a wonderful human. I like adore Patrick, Patrick in French, right? So suddenly it resets everything in your mind and it just gets it right. And I think we all have a responsibility to do this, Middle Eastern or uh, gay, lesbian, whatever you are. Yeah, I think that leaning into that even further, you know, with people who are transgender, or if we want to bring race into the conversation, uh, you know, there's so many things that like, if we just leaned in and looked at the possibility that whatever you've been taught, or whatever conditioning or whatever systems have brought you to the point where you are not accepting or you have judgment or prejudice for another person, particular person or particular population of people, group of people, what if you challenge those, right? Like what if, (laughs) you know, what if you were wrong? What if the people who taught you that way were wrong? I mean, I guess, you know, and it's a much, much- is that the case? Right. It's it's a much bigger conversation. And I know one that we're not um, here to get into today, but I, I think it's all kind of leading in that direction, right? It's like just about challenging that. And what if you just chose love instead of fear? I mean, because really mm. all of that is based in fear, fear of the unknown, fear of threat, perceived threat or scarcity. If someone else has, then I don't, right? Like that's what all of this, if you boil it all down to like one simple thing, that's where these things come from. It's fear. Mm-hmm. And I would rather live in love. And I know that you would too. I don't think I should say a single word after this, Kelly. I love you so much. You're an amazing being. And what if we chose love over fear? I think that's the way we should leave it. Thank you so much for this today. It's been a wonderful connected conversation as always. Thanks. I enjoyed it well. And thank you all for joining us today. I'm guessing you may be wondering, so what was that conversation about? What was the one common thread across all of the experience and journey of Kelly? And and it's actually very clear in my mind, it's that one thread of getting to know yourself, getting to accept yourself, and getting to be who you are, not what the world wants you to be. And I hope you spend some time to think about that for your own life today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. As always, I'm very, very grateful that you give me the alibi to speak to people, to catch up with friends, and to sometimes host some of the wisest people I know to share with you something that opens your eyes to a different perspective or perhaps a perspective that needs to be prioritized. For that, I'm always grateful. I still want to ask you to spread the word and tell as many people as you can about slow-mo so that we can reach more and more people with this kind of wisdom and those kinds of touching and inspiring human experiences. Find me on social media. I've said that many times on a million other podcasts, so I'm not going to bore you with it, but it feels wonderful every now and then when you send me a message or leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate all of them. And... um, I know that we're all rushing back into our busy life now, so it's important to remind you, as per the spirit of this podcast, that regardless of how busy you are today, there will always, always be time for you to slow down. I love you all for listening, and I will see you next time.